This episode of Hopecast is sponsored by Netflix in honor of the Academy Award-winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Octopuses turn out to be unbelievably intelligent. They don't have a single brain like us. They have a brain in the part of them that's a head. They also have brains in their arms and they can work out little puzzles to open boxes in the wild. They can make houses out of two empty clamshells or coconut shells. They carry them to a place where there are no rocks and they're soft bodied. So they need normally to hide in rocks. Then they'll put one half of the clamshell on the ground. They'll ooze into it and they can go into tiny spaces. And then they reach out, put the other one on top. And then or you just see the eyes peeking out and the fish goes by and boom, out come the arms to grab the fish. So there was one octopus that I read about. She lived in an aquarium and the people couldn't understand why fish were disappearing because everything was normal in the morning. So they put up a camera. And when everybody had gone and it was quiet, this octopus gently pushed away out under the lid of her tank. She went into another tank. She consumed a fish, and then she went back to her tank, which they would do because they have homes. And you know, there's this wonderful new film, My Octopus Teacher, by Craig Foster. And he's become one of my best friends, and his stories about the octopus in the ocean are so enchanting. Changing mindsets and opening hearts about Mother Earth. Our planet is a gift. I believe in the collective efforts of everyone. I believe that everyone can make a difference. I aspire to change the world too because of the hope she the gave me. She devoted her life. Together we can save the world. Together we can. Together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall, and this is the Hopecast. Today, I get to chat with one of the people who truly inspires me, someone who's become a real friend, though we've never met in person, Craig Foster. I'm sure many of you have seen Craig's amazing film, My Octopus Teacher. It's a Netflix original, and it has just been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary. Craig is also the co-founder with Ross Freilink of the Sea Change Project, which is all about saving our oceans. Craig embodies the power of storytelling. His film and his still photography have opened the eyes of millions of people around the world to the wonders of the kelp forest and the sentience, beauty, and intelligence of the octopus. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Craig Foster. Craig, welcome to this Hopecast. And I find it most extraordinary that, although I feel I know you so very well, and we did speak once on the telephone, I feel I've known you most of my life. So I'm really, really excited to be having this conversation with you. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jane. I also feel I've known you for years. I mean, obviously, we've communicated on email so much. 
in such a wonderful way and you've inspired me already so deeply so it's it's really exciting to be face to face like this it is i wish it was real face to face but that'll come absolutely so you know craig what i think is extraordinary and fascinating is that we're both passionate about saving forests but your forest is deep under the sea and my forest is very definitely on land and yet they're both so important in helping to mitigate climate change. In fact, you always tell me that your kelp forests sequester even more CO2 than my land forests. They do. I think it's at least 10 times as much. But of course, it's so different than it. Your trees you know, last for hundreds of years. But our kelp stipes and the plants you know, only last for one or two years. We have these huge Atlantic storms that come through that you know, rip a lot of the kelp off the rocky bottom. And then those pieces of kelp get washed in. And sometimes it's a meter or so deep on the beach. And then these tiny little amphipods and isopods, which are like little crustaceans that live in the intertidal, there are literally millions of them. They like migration in, in miniature. They come out in enormous numbers. It's quite incredible to see. And they eat tons and tons of this kelp that washes up. And then the birds eat them. So it's a wonderful cycle. Where the carbon is stored is some of this kelp that gets ripped off gets taken out into the deeper ocean. And that's where it, it sinks down and that where that carbon gets stored. And we don't know quite how much there is, but it could be a significant amount. And of course, the standing forest holds a tremendous amount of carbon. And this forest is growing at one centimeter per day. So you can imagine how fast it is and how different it is to your forest in Tanzania. Very, very different. So if I remember rightly, Craig, your love of the oceans began when you were just a little boy. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's some fun stories around that I think you'd enjoy. I mean, um, I think I was three days old and I came from the nursing home and we had this incredible little wooden bungalow that was actually below the high water mark. That's how close we were to the ocean. And my, my dad literally took me straight from the hospital, straight into the Atlantic Ocean and put me into that 12 degree water as I came. And I, I, was, <laughs> I went blue in the face and I couldn't actually scream. I was so shocked. So that was my first introduction. He was so excited to introduce me to the ocean um, <laughs> and he probably didn't realize that it'd be a bit of a shock for a small, a child of three days old. <laughs> so we had this incredible little wooden bungalow and it was so close to the ocean, Jane, that the, the big waves used to come up and smash the windows. So we actually used to have uh, special wooden pieces that we used to, as soon as the storm came in, those animals that I told you about used to eat the, the kelp, the amphipods and the isopods, they somehow know the storm is coming. So they all start rising out of the intertidal many hours before the storm is shown. And then we, as soon as we saw those animals, we'd put up these wooden boards on the windows. And then when the waves threw the rocks up, they didn't break the windows. And when we came in the morning after a big storm, our lawn would be a meter deep in kelp and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't walk around. Even some of the kelp was a little double story used to get thrown on top of the roof. So it was like literally living in the ocean in that home. It would be battered by the ocean. And today they've actually had to move that home a meter or two up on a platform because it just became too much. 
for a child, you can imagine growing up so close to that ocean. And I had a little porthole in my room that I used to look through. And I remember clearly, even today, the bigger waves breaking the door down and filling the whole bottom of the house up. And I go, at night, I got out of my bed and I was standing in a waist deep in water. We loved it. Though. It was a huge adventure. And of course, then I, my dad was a, a love diving and I, I learned to dive by going on his back and riding on his back through the kelp forest at, before I could almost walk. So it was a, a magical childhood. And I was keen to know about your childhood, how you, did your childhood connect you to nature in a similar way? Well, I didn't have anything as exciting as growing up in a rainforest. <laughs> I wish I had, but no, it was more my push towards animals that took me out watching squirrels and birds and any animals that I could find and reading books about them. Different childhood from yours, but the same kind of interest, I think, in the natural world. Wonderful. I think some people uh, are just born with that incredible love, like you say. I've noticed that. I kind of had to learn it, so I didn't have that advantage, I think, that you had. But funny enough, behind our house was a giant milkwood tree, and I used to spend a lot of time in that tree, and I took a lot of the artifacts that I found in the ocean and used to store them in little holes in that tree. Oh, how sweet, like a squirrel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was deeply in love with nature as a whole, but I had to, it took me quite a long time to learn to love and connect with individual animals like you, I think, had from an early age. And so that evolved into what you do now. And I first heard of you because of your amazing documentary, My Octopus Teacher. That film has moved so many people. I was especially fascinated because, you know, I'm really, really interested in what we're learning now about animal intelligence. It doesn't really surprise me because I always knew animals were intelligent, but uh, the things we're learning now, and of course the octopus was one of the creatures that it seems it's so strange. They are so different from us. They've had a different evolutionary pathway. And yet they're so intelligent. So you weren't planning to make a film about your octopus, were you? It just happened? Uh, yes. I mean, I was, uh, was the last thing I was actually planning to do. I was trying to get away from the sort of intensity of filmmaking. And I wanted to just dedicate uh, my life to understanding nature and tracking but I used my camera as a tool to learn about her. She just did so many extraordinary things that it sort of evolved into this film. But you're right, this, this is the, the intelligence of these animals is mysterious because it's 500 million years of evolution that separates us. Yet some of the thinking is almost mammalian in its complexity. And what's so interesting also about the octopus cognition is two-thirds of that thinking, two-thirds of that cognition is outside the brain, actually in the arms and in the body. And that's very hard for us to even really comprehend. We don't fully understand it. And even the suckers themselves seem to be communicating with each other. And imagine having like, you know, 2,000 fingers that's the equivalent. They've got about 2,000 suckers. And to move those in the symphony in the way they do, I mean, it's just takes, you know, imagine the coordination and the brain power to just do that. So, and that's a simple thing that they do the whole time. It's really so incredible communication from brain to brain. 
it's sort of moving in the direction of our internet and all the amazing things that's happening with with artificial intelligence. And the octopus is doing it anyway. Isn't that fascinating? Yes. I mean, I, my, my view is that, you know, the, the technology of nature is so far advanced from any of our technology. I'm talking about, you know, it's, it's millions of times more uh, advanced than our most advanced space technology. And I think that people don't understand just how far behind nature's technology we are. And, and that's why I think that, you know, this idea that technology is going to be the saving grace uh, obviously can help us, but it isn't. The real supreme technology is inherent in nature and has been developed over millions and millions of years. I know I asked you in one of our conversations, were you ever tempted to give your octopus teacher a name? And you said you decided deliberately not to, or? Yes, yes, and uh, I, I did. I was tempted, uh, absolutely tempted in the beginning. My reasoning was that she felt, you know, more like kin, what I can only describe as kin to me rather than a pet. And I didn't want people to think in any way uh, she was a pet. Also, there's a sense of underwater, you know, you've got your snorkel in your mouth. On land, if you see an animal, you might be tempted to speak gently to them and so on. But underwater, that's just not possible. So you don't develop a name that easily underwater. And I just felt that she was, most of all, she just was my teacher. And I looked up to her and I almost felt that I would honor her best by just calling her my teacher. And that's what she was, a tremendous teacher and an inspiration to me. See, my teacher was my dog that I had as a child. And I, I could never imagine not naming the animals I was studying because, well, how else would I relate to them if I didn't have a name for them? Like the chimpanzees, you know, the scientist told me I should have given them numbers. And is the number six any different than the name Fifi? I, to me, not. I think many people were so glad that you broke that scientific protocol and went with your deep feelings. I think many people were very pleased about that. And that's why we've given our environment here, the Great African Sea Forest, this name. Without a name, it's very hard to protect something. And you need to give it a name and you need to give it an identity and you need to put all your passion behind that. The other question I had for you, which I've never asked you, is if you were doing what most divers would do in your situation with the helmet and the tank, wouldn't that give you one advantage in that you could stay long and see through to the end of an interaction? So I'm really curious as to, do you feel that without these things that you can get closer, feel closer to your creatures in your sea world? Uh, yes. I mean, obviously there's an advantage, Shane, to scuba and that you can stay down for a long time. But the kelp forest environment is... You know, it's very close, they're very like narrow little caves. The kelp forest grows close together. So the scuba tank will not allow you to get into a lot of the places that I get into. Also, I'm often covering large distances, two to three kilometers 
uh, sometimes in a dive. Now that's impossible with the scuba. The other, the other big factor is a lot of the animals don't like vibrations. So when you breathe underwater and all those bubbles explode, it, it gives off massive vibrations. It's like shouting underwater. So certain animals that are like sharks, for instance, that are sensitive to vibration, you'll never see them. I wanted to you know, go in on its terms rather. I wanted to feel the cold. I wanted to feel the kelp against my body. I wanted to feel what that's like. Yeah, that's great. Well, it obviously wasn't the same for me in the forest. But I never wore the kind of gear that people expected me to. You know, when little girls dress up as Jane for Halloween, which they often do, they always put on a pith helmet. I've never (laughs) never worn a hat in my life. I've never worn boots. I always wore just little sandals or plimsolls um, because I want to feel as close as possible. Certain places where there aren't thorns and nasty stones, I walked, walked barefoot a lot. My feet were very tough. And uh, in the wet season, going up in the early morning, going into this icy, dew-laden, dew wet grass that had been rained on all night that was over my head. So I'd arrive up on the peak or wherever, sopping wet and so cold. So I took to bundling my clothes in plastic. And then when I got to my destination, I could put on dry clothes. There was nobody to see me, and it was dark anyway. <laughs> And, you know, I had this feeling, which people say was ridiculous. I meant to be here. The animals won't hurt me. Well, ridiculous or not, they didn't hurt me. So was it ridiculous? I don't think so. (laughs) But you did have some, uh, in in the beginning, you mentioned something about, you know, some of the chimps, when they perhaps weren't so used to you, could be quite aggressive. How does that exactly work? And how did you overcome that? Well, you know, at first, as you know, they ran away from me. And then mm. when it came to the first rainy season, somehow, you know how people will sometimes dash across a road in the heavy rain without properly looking. Chimps were like that. It seemed that they didn't have their normal fear reaction because they were miserable and they hated the rain. And so this one occasion, I was going in the rain and going through the forest and I suddenly heard a chimpanzee, and they make a little, ooh, that's when they're puzzled by something. And this little, ooh, was ahead of me. And I stopped immediately. I knew it was a chimp. And then I heard, ooh, behind me. And then I heard what we call a, a raw call. It's a, it's a real savage sound. They make it a predator. I can't imitate it. And that was over there. And then I heard another sound above me. And I realized I was absolutely surrounded. Wow. And then one of them displayed, dragging a branch, came very close to me. And I was just pretending I was interested in digging holes in the ground. I couldn't care less about them (laughs) eating little leaves. And then one of them actually hit me as he went past. And I wasn't afraid until they'd all gone. I think it's really lucky if I'd known then how aggressive, how brutal, how strong they are, I would have been terrified. I was really lucky. I really think I was terribly lucky because they could have done that. But maybe it was this same, I meant to be here, nobody will hurt me. Or the lack of fear, then they felt that lack of fear and then didn't take advantage of you. Something like that. But now it's your turn. 
what's your worst sea experience? I think <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> There's actually been uh, too many uh, scary experiences. Um, but I think the one you're referring to is when I was in my early 20s. And, you know, um, you kind of feel when you're that young that you're sort of invincible. And I went diving with my brother and a, a great friend who's also a very experienced diver. And it happened to be the, the roughest day of the year. And we went in the water and we were okay for a while. And then these giant swells came in. And I always remember looking at this, these mountains of water coming towards me. And I dived down and I held on maybe 25 feet down onto the kelp, the bottom of the kelp. And those huge waves ripped me off the bottom and smashed me into a reef. And I thought I was going to die. And we fought that giant sea for two hours and we ended up with cramps in our legs. I thought we were all going to die. And then this miracle happened. This enormous wave picked us up and actually lifted us over the cliff and deposited us in a tree. And then the water went away and we were lying in the top of this tree. And it was like our lives had been given back to us. And that was actually the, the first day I ever wore a seatbelt in a car because that, that feeling of invincibility was taken away very quickly. And I was humbled in the extreme. But I've had quite a few, you know, diving for years every day. You, you get safer and safer as you get more experience. But I have been stuck in caves underwater without, you know, with just on one breath and almost drowned a number of times, smashed into rocks. But I'm now very, very careful. So I, I try to avoid any dangerous situations at all costs. Well, I think uh, something is looking after both you and me. I believe so, yeah. I've had more than my nine lives. <laughs> you know, we're meant to be doing what we do. And so we must have our lives preserved, right? <laughs> well, I hope I get to. Well, I think, you know, I've done it. I'm 87, so come on. I've, I've weathered wow. most of my... <laughs> but there was one time, very strange, actually. Mm. And it's not only me who's experienced this, but with these chimps, these strong, potentially aggressive chimps, and one of them, Frodo, he bullied other young chimps. In fact, when young chimps were playing, laughing, and Frodo came to join in, they immediately stopped because he was so rough that he caused one of them to scream. So they knew, so they stopped playing. And he bullied them, but he bullied people, and especially me. And at that time, you know, I was spending longer away from Gombe. And I think, I don't know why he singled me out, but I think maybe he felt he had to reassert his dominance every time I appeared, which is ridiculous because I kept saying, Frodo, I know you're dominant. Will you stop it? But he would come and charge me, hit me. You'd have to grab a tree. He would try and pull you, not too hard. And three times to me, he dragged me down a slope. and. If he had done his normal charging, hitting, dragging, there's no question I would have been killed. Once I was on the edge of a very, very steep drop, once I was at the top of a real skiddy slope, and another time I was crouched in a tree and quite high up. In it. But Frodo would come and he'd veer off at the last minute. So it's as though he was just showing off and proving his dominance, but not meaning to kill us, because he could have easily, strong enough. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, they could just tear you apart. But uh, was it terrifying when he was dragging you or were you okay? No, it was, I was angry. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was scared <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what did you think, what did they see you as? Do you think they saw you as the human or as another strange chimpanzee? Not a chimpanzee, I'm sure. But, you know, in, in a chimp's life, the most important other is other chimps, obviously. And next, it's the other animals, especially those they prey on, like monkeys. Mm. And then, well, there's this other queer creature, you know, a human. <laughs> you know, on land, a lot of the animals on land, you actually have to be very careful with. But the extraordinary thing about the water, I mean, yesterday... I was diving in shallow water with 50 sharks. And each one of those sharks is, you know, a little bit bigger than me and can tear me to pieces. And there's something incredible about being in the water that you can actually be right up close to big predators. And 99.9% .9 of the time, they don't harm you in any way. And these sharks were coming, you know, right, right close to me, almost brushing their bodies against me. And that was in murky water. So they're coming out of the gloom. And I, was, I could be completely relaxed knowing that they would not attack me and I could completely relax my body. And most of these big animals, including great whites, including orcas, almost every animal in the ocean, I've had incredible interactions with these giant stingrays that can just kill you in a second, mm -hmm. but they're very, very um, gentle. Um, and I think it's because in terms of evolution for a million years or so, animals on land, when they see that upright creature with the spear, that in their mind is danger and is something that is a potential threat. Whereas we haven't been in the water much. So when animals sees a strange primate in the water <laughs> and feels a strange heartbeat and the strange muscle tension and all the strange things, it just doesn't register. That's why I asked you, what do the chimps see you as? The animals in the sea are perplexed as to what this thing can be. So it doesn't come up on their search image at all as predator or prey. So they generally leave us alone. And the amazing advantage of that is you can get up close and have these incredible experiences while you're kind of flying with them. And then yesterday was mind-blowing. It was just these long, sleek silver bodies with these huge eyes and they're just coming out of the murk out of the kelp forest and having a look and then they just disappeared it was just absolutely magnificent and your whole spirit just lifts and you just feel you know absolutely connected for that moment and nothing else is there it's so so peaceful You are demonstrating one of the things that I've always felt, the importance of storytelling. And, you know, you once wrote to me, one day I wish I could take you down into my world in the ocean. I said, Craig, you have, because your stories take me there with you. I'll never be in your ocean physically, but you've taken me there mentally and spiritually. I think I heard that you had people who, felt that you had too much emotion or empathy towards the animals you were watching. Is that true? Yes. I mean, there's obviously always going to be people who just want to look at the hard facts. But my sense is the greatest scientists on this planet are the great naturalists as well. 
and the, the people who have that empathy. When you have that combination of science, empathy, and a deep passion and love for wild things, it's unbeatable, you know. And I'm so glad you talked about storytelling because it's often underplayed. And I have only recently really realized the sheer power of storytelling. I mean, that's what we've done since the beginning of time. We've come back from our adventures in the wild and we've told our clan, our group of people, the stories of animals and our encounters with them. It's the oldest story on earth. And our whole brains are designed and hardwired to absorb those stories. Those people never came back and sort of stating facts and figures. We can never remember that. And it doesn't hit us in the place where we can remember. As you say, a good story, you never forget. Facts, facts and figures in five seconds, you've forgotten. Of course, the data in science is critical, but you need to translate that data into stories that we can understand and empathize with. In terms of conservation, obviously, empathy and story is so critical to bring about change. Stories really do make a difference. Mm. And also this thing about having empathy, certainly with the chimps, if there was an interaction that I didn't understand because I had empathy with them, I could say to myself, well, I think they're behaving like that because, because, you know, something we do perhaps. Then you can sit back and put on your scientific thinking mode and you can say, well, was my intuition right? But if you don't have that empathy, you don't get those aha moments. At least I wouldn't have. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's exactly the same way in a way. I mean, I felt at some point that I could step a little bit into the secret world of the octopus. And she, my teacher, allowed me to step into that world. And I could start thinking a little bit like an octopus can think. And of course, that's how I worked out so many of these behaviors. I've heard a lot of people say that the behavior of an octopus and the intelligence of an octopus is probably as close as we can get to imagining what an alien species from outer space might be like. They say that because we're so far away in, in terms of evolution. Mm. It could have been evolving on another planet, but it's kind of co-evolution. So when you get to know the animals that well, they don't, for at least to me, they don't seem like an alien at all. If anything, Jane, I think we are the aliens on our planet. <laughs> Probably, yes. We've become, we've, we've become alien to the wild. We're the lost child of, of the wild group that we once were. The joke is we are, you know, we're living so out of our design that we've become disconnected from the very planet that we were born on. And we have lost wisdom, the wisdom of these indigenous people who mm. think about the decisions they make and think how they might affect the future. I think a lot of indigenous people were thinking seven generations ahead. They saw, you know, wild animals, wild ecosystems as family, as kin, as part of our family. The biodiversity on this planet, the animals, the plants, the, the air, it's all feeding us from second to second. It's the thing that's keeping us alive. That's the original mother. That's absolutely critical to every moment of our lives. And we've in this, in this strange disconnection, forgotten this, this great forgetting. And if we don't remember pretty quickly, it's going to get a lot, lot harder to exist. There's a window of time and we can start healing some of the harm, but it's closing. It's not static. 
you know, that's why I work so hard with young people. I found they were losing hope, not surprisingly, but there is something that can be done. And that's the key message we need to get together now. So, Craig, you know, I think we all agree now with the planet and the state that it's in, that having hope is tremendously important because without hope, you don't take action. So did meeting your octopus teacher give you hope? Um, very much so. I mean, um, on many levels, actually, Jane. I mean, you know, she taught me so much about the, the natural world, so much about her species, but so much also about that every individual animal is so precious and has this distinct personality. And then through that, I got a, a, a glimpse of the what I call the giant biological mind, this enormously powerful and sophisticated giant brain that is wild nature. And the, the power of mother nature gave me a lot of hope. I realized she is eternal. And she, even though we were smashing her so hard, she will always come back no matter what, even with or without us. So that gives me a sense of hope, but also through the film, you know, we were expected maybe it could never see the light of day. We had no idea it would be so popular. And basically started the film in my attic with no budget, nothing. And it was a series of miracles that landed it on Netflix. And I've just got thousands of incredible messages from all over the planet. People who just get it. They get this wonder of nature. They, they empathize at the deepest level. They've been you know, drawing beautiful pictures, writing stories, they've been moved in, in ways that I could never imagine. And that gives so much hope that I think just under the surface of this disconnection, this difficult place that humanity has almost been forced into, there are millions and millions of wild souls just waiting to do the right thing and to allow this planet to regenerate. It gives me enormous hope to have felt humanity react to one little octopus's magnificent life in this way is, is quite beyond my wildest dreams, absolutely remarkable. And that's what I wanted to ask you, you know, what in your, all your incredible experience and, and years of doing this work, it's so incredible to look at what you've done and the tenacity with which you've done it. And I just can't thank you enough. You know, it's just so wonderful. But in all your experience, what is the best thing that people can do? Well, it's going to be different for different people. But if people just realize, and this is the main message of our youth program, but really it's for everybody, that each single one of us matters, every one of us, uh, just like every animal matters too. And each one of us humans anyway, we make some impact on the planet every day and we can choose that impact. If everybody chooses to live in such a way and make ethical decisions that benefit the future, to think about what you buy, did it harm the environment? Was it cruel to animals? Is it cheap because of sweatshops? If hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of people start making ethical choices, then that's going to lead us towards a better world. And when people say, well, I feel helpless and hopeless. And I say, well, just stop thinking globally and for a little moment, think locally and think, what can I do here? I can't heal the world. I'm not meant to heal the world. 
but I can do something in my own community. So, Craig, what can people do if they truly are inspired by you, by, by your octopus teacher? What can they do to help save our precious, precious oceans and the amazing beings that inhabit the ocean? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's such an important question. What actually can people do? And I think the first thing to do is educate yourself. You know, many people don't realize that we're actually in a major environmental crisis right now. We're in the sixth great mass extinction. It's it's like an apocalypse that in a way we're walking through blindfolded. It's, it's quite terrifying in some ways, but there is a lot of hope. And what we can do is we've got to give nature and the oceans a chance to recover, to regenerate. So we need to pull a lot of the pressures away from her. People can vote with their wallets and not support companies that don't support nature or actually actively polluting nature or undermining poor people or uh, have got you know social justice issues. And the other big thing is, is slowly we can start decentralizing the way we operate. So instead of getting produce from far away, use your local farmers, your local people, support farms that do regenerative farming, support farms that don't uh, use insecticides. A lot of these pollutants end up in the ocean. Support you know, politicians that care about nature, care about the ocean. The more people we get together from more diverse backgrounds to support the natural world, the better it's going to be. But we need a big, big, big following from many, many walks of life. And we need to uplift poor people because they can't be expected to be part of this if they're in survival mode. It's impossible. When you see how fast in the ocean, Jane, the, the regenerative properties, especially where I am, it's one of the most biodiverse places on the planet, the, the upwelling, this, this cool nutrient-rich water that comes from the deep and just feeds everything, the, the way it can regenerate, how fast. I've seen reefs that have been stripped clean from a big storm and there's nothing on them. And just you know, six months later, it's just thriving with thousands and thousands of animals. It's quite incredible if you just give it a chance. There's some amazing examples of what nature can do if you give her a chance. You've given me so much hope and you've helped me so much with my storytelling by encouraging me, Jane, and I feel so grateful to you. So you're inspiring so many people and I'm one of those. You inspire people too. Thank you so much for coming on this Hopecast. You've been a fantastic guest and I couldn't ask for a better one. Until we meet again, thank you. Thank you so much. The first chimpanzee to lose his fear of me was David Greybeard. I was following him along a trail in the forest. I lost him for a moment, but then found him sitting. I sat near him, and lying on the ground between us was this ripe red palm nut, which chimpanzees love. So I picked it up, and I held it towards him on the palm of my hand, and he turned his face away. So I put my hand closer, and he turned and looked directly into my eyes. He reached out, and he took and dropped that palm nut, but then 
very gently squeezed my fingers. And that's how chimpanzees reassure each other. So in that moment, we understood each other without the use of human words, the language of gestures. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Inar Gaukusha is our producer, and Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler. Follow Dr. Jane Goodall and the Jane Goodall Institute on social at facebook.com slash Jane Goodall and at Jane Goodall INST on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to share about the Hopecast tagging JGI and hashtag Hopecast for a chance to be featured. To learn more about Jane and JGI, visit janegoodall.org and support our work at janegoodall.org slash donate. The Hopecast is a movement of hope turned into action fueled by each of you. To become an official Hopecaster and support the podcast, visit janegoodall.org slash Hopecaster.